0: truly is a joy to gather this morning. Why don't you all take this time to turn around and say hi to somebody.
1: That is
0: good All right, let's do our call to worship. If you can find your seat. You can remain standing, though, if, you're, if you'd like. Well, brothers and sisters, we're here because all of our lives have been changed, right, at one point. We're here because a father has placed his love on us before the world was even formed. We're here because his son gave himself as a ransom for us by going to the cross. And we're here because the Holy Spirit has been implanted into our hearts, and he now lives inside of us. What amazing news. And this is why we gather on a Sunday, right? We come to worship this amazing God. So as a call to worship this morning, let's be reminded of why we sing. Let's be reminded that we live today because of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. We're set free as we gather this morning. So for a call to worship, hear these words. From Colossians uh, chapter 1, verses 15 through 22. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless, and above reproach before him. Let's continue to worship.
1: Ah uh-huh. So... so amazing singing out church love so
2: Prone to wander. Lord, we feel that. Prone to leave the God that we do love. That is our story, brothers and sisters, whether just one sin this last week or countless sins. We feel it, don't we? Our sins are real. We we can't ignore them. We don't want to sugarcoat them. So what do we do? What do we do as sinners in need when we're in need of forgiveness. And that's what's so beautiful about the gospel because Jesus invites us to come to him, to confess our sins. Not to hide them, not to ignore them, not to make them be something that they're not, but to deal with them because he's already dealt with them. If you're a believer here in Jesus Christ, past, present, and future, all of your sins have been nailed to the cross. And so there's great hope because we remember as the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter four, verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Take just a few moments of silent confession before the Lord. Receive his pardon. Receive his mercy. Find help this morning in your time of need. Let's pray.
1: My mind to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me. I see his food his hands, his feet, my Saviour. to the entrance sealed by heavy Death, where is your sting? The angels roar for Christ.
3: be seated would you join me in prayer as we pray for three things one of our core values here at gcf church that we support and some missionaries that we support as well in prayer Pray with me now isaiah 42 verse 8 and 9 say i am the lord that is my name My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. God Almighty in heaven, you are the God who created the universe with but your word, You knit the fabric of space-time together, ex nihilo, from nothing. You split the seas in Egypt and fed your people with bread from the skies. You led them by pillars of fire and smoked the promised land. You sent your Son to come dwell among us and live a perfect life and lead us into salvation. You are glorious and we celebrate you. Do not allow us to live for ourselves Help us to give you all the glory. We pray similarly for Norm Schwab and the team at Northview Bible Church. Whatever ministries they are doing, whatever blessings you pour out on their assembly, and we pray for blessings in number and depth of their assembly. Do it all for your own glory, and may they point to you when blessings abound. Give the leadership of that church a humility to lead well and steward the gifts present amongst their people all that your glory might be shown most effectively. We pray for the Sakaguchi family, Saita and Emma, and for their kids in Japan and their faithful work amongst a difficult context in Tokyo. We ask that you might show your glory once more by putting it in the hearts of more and more busy Tokyo residents to seek out Christian assembly where they can hear and read of your glory shown most in the life, death, resurrection and ascension of your son jesus christ may the people there be gripped by how awe-inspiring and amazing your sovereign hand is and may satan and Emma lead in a manner that takes them out of the way and lets you and your acts shine save souls encourage christians empower their church for your glory finally we pray for jeff today as he expounds your word for us Father, if you speak to us today, if you grip anyone's heart here right now by this living word, if anyone comes to saving faith today for the first time by this message, it is not for their sake that they may simply be in heaven and feel your peace that surpasses all understanding here and now. Those things are real, but if anything happens through this word in our hearts today, it is so that more knees might be bowed before you in worship to you and your glorious plans and promises. Bring us to our knees this morning. Amen.
2: Amen. Thanks, Noah. Well, good morning. Again, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here at GCFL. It's good to see you here and welcome. If you are worshiping with us, maybe visiting family and friends on this holiday weekend, we're glad that you are here, GCF exists to glorify God. We, through that, we do that through gospel-centered worship, evangelism, discipleship, and community. Community happens in a lot of different ways. One of the main ways that that works itself out here at GCF is through our home groups. Many of you are already involved in a home group. Our home groups meet basically three out of four weeks throughout the school year, uh, taking a break uh, for the summer, which is really a chance to rest for our home group leaders and wives give them a little bit of uh, respite. Uh, But if you're not yet involved in a GCF home group or you'd like more information about that, summer is actually a great time to check out some of those different home groups. Most of the home groups have barbecues, more social things. It's a great way uh, just to get to know some other folks. And uh, you are welcome to go to a number of different home groups and compare food that they're serving. uh, a couple years ago, somebody really took me up on that offer, and they literally went to like eight different barbecues throughout the summer, and uh, I thought, that's great, and they said, wow, you guys really like to eat a lot, uh, and we do, to the glory of God. Uh, so those opportunities there, uh, talk to Kelly, or you can talk to myself. We'd love to hook you up with some of those home groups and just a chance for you to get connected and enjoy uh, that kind of a gospel community that we, it's easy to take for granted, but we don't want to take that for granted. Life is, life is too hard to do it alone, amen? So we need each other. Uh, If you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Mark as we continue here in our series. Mark chapter 12, just a couple verses for us today. Mark chapter 12, verse 35 through 37. As you're turning there, uh, we just want to remind you a couple weeks, two weeks from today, we're going to have several baptisms, I think six baptisms. So uh, that's uh, Sunday, June 11th, Uh, really looking forward to that and uh, you can be praying as, as those folks are working on their testimonies, and uh, be praying for them. Some of them are a little bit nervous to get up in front of you, uh, and, but I said, look, this is about family. We're family here, and so uh, just be praying for them. That's gonna be a sweet, sweet Sunday. A couple more weeks here in the Gospel of Mark before we, uh, as is our custom, at least in the last few years, before we take a summer break, working through our Psalms. I believe we left off at Psalm 19, Last summer, so we'll pick it up at Psalm 20 and make our way through the next uh, nine or ten psalms this summer, so just a little bit of advance notice for you. If you if, If you're able to, please stand as I read Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 35. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. This is God's word for us today. You may be seated. Join me in prayer. Our great God and heavenly Father, As we turn our attention to your word now, I pray that you would give us ears to hear your word. Really, Lord, I pray that the saints gathered here today would, by your spirit, hear a far better sermon than the one that I'm about to preach. Speak, speak to each of us, I pray, exactly what we need to hear. Comfort us. Challenge us. Holy Spirit, convict us in the areas of our lives where where we need your holy conviction, where perhaps we are stumbling and bumbling and fumbling along. Change us, transform us, so that this week might be different, that we might better love you and serve you and obey you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's possible to have the right information, but it still be inadequate and it still be incomplete. If you tell me that okra is in the vegetable section of the grocery store, that is correct information. You're absolutely right. But if that's all you tell me and you want me to buy okra, I still don't know enough in order to buy okra. What is okra? it sounds like a card game. Hey, why don't you come over tonight? We're gonna play okra. What color is okra? How big is okra? What what does it actually even look like? Turns out there's a lot of different vegetables in that whole section, the vegetable section, that I don't even go anywhere near when I go to the grocery store. You can have the right information, but it can still be incomplete. It can still be inadequate sometimes the consequences can even be more drastic. Perhaps your doctor tells you that you need a medical procedure and so you check with your insurance company, you make that call to make sure that everything's covered and you are assured that it is, you go ahead with that procedure and then a week or two later you get a very large bill for it. So you call your insurance company back, this must be a mistake, you're only to be told that, no, no, the procedure was covered but it's only covered at certain hospitals and your hospital was not on the list. So you had the right information, but it was still inadequate. It was incomplete. Many of us here this morning have the right information about Jesus. We've got the right information about the Gospels. We've got the right information about theology. We've got the right information about biblical facts. Yet, perhaps our knowledge might still be incomplete. It might still be inadequate. It doesn't get us where we need it to go. And even more, we can actually end up missing something really important. We can end up missing the truth, some very important truths about Jesus or about the Bible along the way. So our text this morning here in Mark 12 really highlights that danger. Jesus is still in the temple. He's been there for a little while, certainly the last few sermons. He's been answering some very important questions from some very important religious leaders, Now, most of these questions have been carefully planned traps by by the opponents of Jesus. They're not really interested in finding the truth. They actually want to get rid of Jesus. They want nothing to do with him. They want to trick him into doing or saying things that would reveal his weakness, that would reveal his shortcomings. Now, here's the problem with that strategy Jesus doesn't have any weaknesses, he doesn't have any shortcomings. He doesn't have any sin. He, he doesn't have a, a brain freeze even for a moment like most of us, let's be honest, all of us sometimes do. So even when a very sincere religious man asks him about the most important commandment, that was our passage last week, which, of the most, which is the most important command, Jesus, of the 613 possible options, Jesus answered decisively, definitively without hesitation. And that's why we read then in verse 34, and after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. His opponents are really out of time, and they're really out of options. Yeah, we tried to trick him. We've tried to trap him. We've thrown everything we can at him, but he's just too smart. It's like he knows what we're about to say before we actually say it. And so from this point on, the detractors of Jesus can only do one thing. They can resort to physical violence, which is in fact what they do. In just a matter of days, Jesus will be arrested by force. He'll be condemned at a false trial. He will be crucified on a cross. And Jesus knows this. None of this is a surprise to him. Jesus knows exactly what is happening to him, and he knows exactly when it's going to happen. And so instead of being asked further questions, now Jesus is the one who turns the tables. Now he's the one, after answering all of their questions, Jesus steps to the mic and he asks a question. What do you suppose he'll ask? Now we know, we just read that, But given the context, if if we understand that this is the, the last really public interaction with Jesus next week, it's really more suited for the disciples. But this is one of his last opportunities to speak publicly. So if you knew that, well, you're about to die, if you knew that there weren't going to be any more opportunities to speak publicly, whether that's to your family or to your friends or to colleagues at work, wouldn't you want to speak about what's most important? Wouldn't you want to share? what is absolutely critical, and that's what we find Jesus doing here. If that's us, we would want our last words to be truthful. We'd want them to be accurate, and we'd sure want them to be complete. We wouldn't want to leave any loose thread, would we? Whatever it is that came out of our mouths, we would want that to be accurate, complete, and adequate. And that's what we find Jesus doing here. His question, we read in verse 35, Actually, there's two questions, verse 35 and verse 37. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? And if you skip down to verse 37, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? Now, at first glance, you might read that and think, that is kind of an odd question. Like, what's Jesus really after here? Is Is he now trying to set a trap for these very religious guys? Because it doesn't seem like there's a lot of wisdom there if you want to get into highly technical debate with a bunch of religious lawyers who really like to argue. Remember the immediate audience here, scribes. The scribes were a very big deal in the first century. Think of the scribes as really a constellation of three titles. They were religious experts, They were intellectual elites, and most of them were high-ranking government officials. So they were the the assistant secretary of such and such, or the the deputy minister of a certain department. They were were a very big deal. They were very powerful. And so it may seem like a little bit of a strange question here from Jesus, but it's actually not at all. Jesus wants to make sure that these very high-ranking, these very powerful, influential people, these very smart lawyers, that they don't have just correct information about him. Now these guys need to have all the information about him because right information about the Messiah but incomplete information about the Messiah, that actually has eternal consequences. So Jesus makes two points to these scribes here. Here's the first point. The Christ is David's son and therefore human verse 35, the Christ, the Messiah, is David's son and therefore human. Now, the Davidic sonship of the Messiah that was very common, universally accepted belief throughout Israel during the day of Jesus. The Jews expected that a Messiah would come from the lineage of David, be a son of David. None of this was surprising to them at all. And so the very scriptures speak to this. 2 Samuel chapter 7, Verse 12, God said to David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Isaiah, speaking of the Messiah, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, oftentimes it's, it's a Christmas passage, right? He said that he would reign on David's throne. The Messiah would reign on David's throne forever. Jeremiah quoted the Lord saying, this is Jeremiah 23 verse 5, I will raise up for David a righteous branch. So it's, it's literally all over the Old Testament. Remember blind Bartimaeus from Mark chapter 10? We looked at him several weeks ago. He recognizes this fact. Blind Bartimaeus calls out to Jesus and he says, Son of David, have mercy on me that blind man could see what so many others failed to see. He calls Jesus son of David, even though David's been dead for a thousand years. So blind Bartimaeus is understanding who Jesus is. He's actually ascribing messianic expectations to him. The scribes didn't get it. They had no category for a Messiah who is actually divine. They're looking for a national hero. They're looking for a warrior Someone coming from David's bloodline. And so that's the very question that Jesus presses in. That's what Jesus wants to raise with these very influential guys. Will the Christ be merely the son of David? Is that all we can say about the Christ? If that's all we can say about the Christ, that he's the son of David, that's true information. That's accurate, but it's incomplete. It's inadequate. It doesn't say enough about the Messiah. It doesn't go far enough. We really don't have the true Messiah. So is the Christ, the Messiah, only human? And that's where Jesus really blows the minds here of these scribes. It's like he just tosses in a stick of spiritual dynamite. Verses 36 and 37 David himself and the Holy Spirit declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So here's the second point. The Christ is David's Lord and therefore divine. The Messiah, the Christ is David's Lord, not just his son. And so because of he's Lord, he's therefore divine. David himself calls him Lord. So the question, so how is he his son? Mark records, and the great throng heard him gladly. But you know what the great throng said? Absolutely nothing. They didn't know what to say. I mean, there Jesus goes again. He's, he's speaking. It's almost like he's speaking in riddles, but he's, he's just far ahead of us. We can't stump this guy. Who does this guy think he is? Does he think he's God? He does. Yeah, that's exactly who he thinks he is. Jesus knows exactly who he is. He's not just the son of David. He is David's Lord, and therefore he is divine. And Jesus, once again here, quotes from the Old Testament. This is from Psalm 110. Incidentally, if you're going to play okra tonight with your friends, and then you move into some Bible trivia, here's how you can win Bible trivia. Psalm 110 is the most quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. 33 times it's alluded to or referenced in the New Testament. And it's actually really key in understanding the identity of who Jesus really is. It gives us the complete picture of the Messiah. Now I want you to notice, Jesus says David in the Holy Spirit. That's an important phrase. Jesus here both ascribes to David The psalm, meaning, yeah, David wrote this, but notice that he says David was inspired by the Holy Spirit. Jesus here affirms the inspiration of the Scriptures. Now, if anyone, if anyone could just do away with the Scriptures, if anyone could just say, oh, that's Old Testament, I got got something new to teach everybody, well, it would be Jesus. But no, he doesn't do that, does he? He absolutely believes in the Old Testament. He believes in the authority of the Scriptures, that David here was inspired by God to write exactly what he wrote. So to quote the Old Testament then is to quote from the Holy Spirit. To say that the Bible says this or that means that God, in fact, said this or that. So Jesus affirms here that the scriptures, the Old Testament in particular, is spoken by God. It comes from God. So even more, what, what does that mean? Jesus believes in that there is actually a meaning to the text that God intended his people to understand. There's a meaning to the text that God all, expects that all of us would understand. Now sometimes you hear a Bible verse and, and it's quoted, maybe maybe a friend of yours or something, and you think, ah, uh, I don't know, wait a minute, that, that doesn't, that seems more like a proof text, meaning a proof text, that seems to be taken out of context, that, that doesn't seem to jive, I don't think that's used properly. So for example, guys, let's say you wanna get married, been praying for a wife, and so in your daily Bible reading you turn to Genesis 24 and you read that Isaac went out to marry Rebecca, and you think that's great, it worked for him, so the next girl you see, hey, Becky, you want to get married? Now, that, that is what I did. <laughs> I did that, and it worked. But that is not a good way to discern God's will. That's not, that's not the, the inspiration of the Scripture here. It's not that, you know, only girls named Rebecca should get married, and only boys named Isaac should marry girls like Rebecca. No, that's not the meaning of that text or perhaps you're not sure, you're thinking the Lord might call you to move. You want to go to the East Coast. Great. So, you read in Revelation chapter 3 about a city named Philadelphia, and you think, well, that's God. Uh, we're going to Philly. Pack up the bags. Also not a good way to discern God's will and direction. For it. That's not what the inspiration of Scripture means. How often do we hear in our day, well, that's just your interpretation? You have your interpretation. I have my interpretation. Well, true enough But brothers and sisters, some interpretations are flat out wrong. Some interpretations are actually right. So the inspiration of Scripture doesn't mean that all interpretations are equal. What am I saying here? I'm saying that God has the ability to communicate His work and His will in a way that we can understand. So if God wants to say something in His Word, He can. And He does because his word is inspired, every last word of it, so you can actually trust every last word that you read in this book. You can trust it so much that you can bank your life on it. Not just earthly life. I mean, that'd be one thing to say, okay, this is a really helpful handbook for earthly life. That'll get you through this life. Do you know how long eternity is? It's a very, very long time. Keeps going and going and going. So every word here, you can bank not just your earthly life on, but for all eternity. Jesus believes that there is a meaning in the scriptures that God intends for his people to understand. And so here, Jesus is saying, as it relates to David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David is saying that he believes his Messiah, or the Messiah, is his Lord. And therefore, is divine. Now that was a big, big problem for the scribes. Big problem. Because on one hand, they're reading the same Scriptures and they're looking at Psalm 110 and they're saying, yeah, that's a messianic Psalm. Okay, we get that. That, that, that. We understand that there's going to be a coming, conquering victor. He's going to vanquish our enemies. That's going to be awesome. He's going to come in power. But that guy can't be divine. You know, we're looking for a, a human. There's no way that the Messiah can be divine. Yet, David clearly says, and here's where he got two words here. David says, the Lord, that is Yahweh, said to my Lord, Adonai, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So, Jesus presses in and asks the very obvious question. How could the Messiah be both David's son and David's lord if he's merely human now just think about that for a moment what father would ever call his son lord i can't ever imagine a time where i'm going to walk up to my son jt and say yes my son i love you jt my lord it's not going to happen that'd be weird describes, so they don't have any answer for this riddle, because they know that David is referring to the Messiah in Psalm 110. Jesus is, in fact, using their own scriptures. He's almost like saying, well, you guys know Psalm 110. You've read it. You've memorized this. You really know what that's about. So, the Messiah is not simply David's son, human. He is David's sovereign. He is Lord. So, he is both human and divine. Otherwise, Psalm 110 makes Zero sense at all. The Messiah must be more than a human. That's all you say. Well, that's correct information, but that's inadequate. It's incomplete. No, the Messiah must also be divine. And that's what the scriptures say. And that's what the scribes and the religious leaders, smart as they were, that's what they failed to see. They failed to see that the Jesus standing right in front of them was in fact the one that David spoke about a thousand years earlier. Now, I can imagine at this point, those scribes are starting to feel a little little hot. And they're hurriedly searching their Torah to say, okay, he just referenced Psalm 110. Is that actually what it says? Does Does that say that in your Torah? Because if it really does say that, and if that's what this really means, then this troublemaker is causing trouble for us because... We don't believe that. So guys, what do you do if what you read is not what actually, you can understand the conversations there. What if the scriptures say one thing, but we actually believe something different? What do you do then? It's kind of where these scribes are at. Well, let me ask you. What do you do when you read your Bible and it says one thing, but you don't like it. You may not like it at all. Seems like at that point, we have two options available, two approaches. When I don't like what I read in this book, it has to change. It's no longer right then. It no longer works for me, it can't be right. My human history, my own experience, my own context, my own circumstances. Well, that, that's, that's what I'm going to use to inform and interpret this book. So I'm going to read the Bible through the lens of me. And so, church, are we really surprised then when so many in the church are so confused about all manner of issues, gender, sexuality, Marriage, divorce, hell, and on and on it goes. The other approach we can take is that when this book says something that I don't like, when this book doesn't like something in me, I need to change. I can't be right if this says I'm wrong. I can't stand in judgment of it. It must judge me. I have to seek its wisdom. Its history is supposed to interpret my history and my life. So, we often hear in our day, total sexual freedom. That's the, the pinnacle of human freedom, Whatever, however I define that. Was well, that really true? I mean, is, is that really human freedom? I can define it whatever I want. Or is that actually a destructive path that only leads to greater and greater bondage and slavery like none other? This book says that true sexual freedom, frankly, enjoyment, will only come in the context of the covenant of marriage, which is between one man and one woman. That's what this book says. So, so who then needs to change? What needs to change? And that's why, brothers and sisters, when you you open up this book, doing your daily devotions, I trust, it's, it's dangerous. Every time you open up the Bible, you pray for the illumination of God's Word, the prayer is always, Lord, change me. Transform me. I'm not transforming this. I'm not trying to make this book say something it doesn't. That's a path to destruction. But I need to hear this and understand this. And weigh that and think, no, that, that's a call for me to change. That's a call for me to be transformed. That's why this book is so very dangerous. That's why it's also so life-giving and hopeful. So the Messiah is David's Lord and therefore divine. That's the point that Jesus is making here. And it's like he's saying, hey, guys, like, talking about me here. And the great challenge for these scribes, as brilliant as they were, the great challenge for them was that Jesus didn't really look all that divine standing in front of them. He looked very human. His name, super common, his name Jesus, that was a very common name, much like Bill or Bob is in our culture. Jesus slept on a cot. He ate real food. You could talk to him. You could touch him. You could go fishing with him. Scholars have researched ancient skeletons, and they've picked up some bone fragments, and they actually determined that the average size of a Jewish male in the first century was five foot one inch. Not very large at all. Jesus looked very human. He wasn't, Scripture say, he wasn't exceptional in his appearance. He certainly wasn't commanding armies. He wasn't giving TED Talks. He didn't have millions of followers on YouTube. He was a very normal guy. And what he said and did was absolutely incredible. So do you think if you're near Jesus, would you look at Jesus and dare call him Lord? You are Lord. And yet, that is and that was in the very first century in the early church, that was the central creed of the New Testament church. Jesus is Lord. So we read in Romans 10 and 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5. What we proclaim, Paul says, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, that language, especially in a church like ours, that language can be very familiar to many of us. We sing. We've sung, pretty much every song we sung this morning talks about Jesus as Lord. We pray to him as Lord. We talk about him as Lord in our home groups, which is a wonderful thing. But you know that nobody can confess Jesus is Lord apart from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, apart from the Lord working in their lives to bring them to that point. Natural man doesn't do that couple weeks, you'll, you'll hear several baptisms and testimonies. You're not going to hear baptisms. You're going to see baptisms. You will hear their testimony. None of those people getting baptized could confess that Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit working in their lives to bring them new life. Natural man just doesn't do that. So the very beginning of the early church confessed Jesus is Lord. And the point of this text is to say that Jesus is so much more than simply a human being. He's so much more than just the son of David. That's true information. That's accurate, but it's incomplete. It's inadequate. The point is that Jesus is the son of God, and he is, in fact, Lord of all. And to declare that Jesus is Lord in Mark's day, as he's recording this, well, that's, that's tantamount to sedition and death, because Caesar is Lord. Of all. So many of those early Christians died with Jesus is Lord as the last cry on their lips. And still today, we know this in different parts of the world. Thousands die every year. Thousands of brothers and sisters die every year with that same cry, Jesus Christ is Lord on their lips because to confess that Jesus is Lord in our day is to invite persecution. It is to welcome suffering, and it is to be okay with your physical death. And yet for all those believers who die with that claim and that confession, their hope rests in the promise of God, Mark eight thirty-five: For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, Jesus, and for the gospels will save it. They die knowing that in fact Jesus Christ is Lord and there is no other. So what does that mean for us? What, is it, what does it really mean to confess that Jesus is both David's son and David's Lord? I think it means two things. Number one, When we confess Jesus is Lord, it means that Jesus is fully divine, and as such, He is our conquering King. So when you say Jesus is Lord, what you're saying is that Jesus is fully divine, and because He is fully divine, He is our coming and conquering King. According to Psalm 110, that means that he's going to put all of his enemies under his feet. That means he's gonna crush every last one of them. Jesus will come again and when he comes again, church, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. He will punish his enemies. He will come to put an end to the arrogant and he will save his people. And that's why the Bible ends with this phrase, come Lord Jesus. Come Lord Jesus. That's what he's going to do when he comes. On that day when he comes, it will will be as our coming, conquering king who is to be rightly feared. Now, there's a whole lot of words that I just spoke there that don't play real well in our 21st century. Punish conquer fear some would even say that's that's kind of barbaric language I, I can't believe you you christians would believe that i can't believe people in the first century actually believe that they don't know what they were talking about do you know what those first century people who actually believe that you know what i think they'd say to us in the 21st century I think they'd say, look, you you people, you don't don't want a judging God. You don't want a God who punishes wrongdoers. You don't want a conquering king. You must not really care about the truth. You you must not really care about justice then. You must not know what what it's like to be oppressed. You, You must have been on top of the world for so long that You're not really all that excited about a conquering king who's going to come to punish evildoers, to save his people, and to usher in his great peace. I mean, Jesus is the conquering Lord, and he will come with power, and he will come with the sword. And frankly, I think, brothers and sisters, one of the reasons maybe why it's it's sometimes difficult to get our heads around that is because we live in a day of very small Jesuses. They're all over the place. Small Jesuses. The the central creed for many in our day is not Jesus is Lord, but it is Jesus is helpful. Jesus is wise. Jesus is a good friend. Jesus is therapeutic. Jesus is a teacher. He's a nice guy. Jesus is a means to an end. Now, there's truth in all of those things, most of them at least, but they're inadequate. They don't go far enough. They don't say enough. They all fall short. And subtly, or sometimes not so subtly, this small Jesus can slip into our lives and our worship as well. Maybe maybe the Jesus you thought you knew is proving inadequate for the challenge that you face before you today. I mean is is your Jesus really able to give you peace? Peace that really does pass all human understanding right in the middle of that storm. Is he able to do that? Is your Jesus able to give you joy? when you look at all around you and the circumstances and it's like there's, there's not a whole lot to be happy about. In fact, there just seems like to be chaos. Is your Jesus able to restore broken relationships, To soothe a guilty conscience? Is your Jesus able to redeem and rescue from the worst sins of your last week? Small Jesus can't do that. Inadequate Jesus, incomplete Jesus can't do that. And the truth is, brothers and sisters, when Jesus is small, or when we think that he is small, our problems become enormous and our anxieties are off the charts. So to confess truly that Jesus Christ is Lord is to say, he is able. He is absolutely sufficient, for every need. And I'm going to keep turning to him. And I'm not going to ever stop. So I'm going to continue to repent of my sins. And I'm going to continue to call the people around me to repent of their sins too. And I'm going to continue to go to him in my time of need. Church, we don't worship a small Jesus. We don't. We don't gather here week in and week out to sing songs to a small Jesus, to pray to a small Jesus, to just throw up offerings of praise and worship and maybe hope that he'll hear us. Mm -mm. If that's what we're doing, we're really wasting time. We ought to close the doors, nobody should come back. We worship Jesus Christ the Lord. Second, When we say Jesus is Lord, here's what we mean by that. We mean then that Jesus is fully human and as such is our priestly Lord. Yes, he's our conquering king, but he is also our priestly Lord. Jesus is unlike any other high priest. There's a whole book, it's called Hebrews, that basically makes that point. So yes, don't skip over all the ways that Jesus is strong and powerful. You're going to have correct information. But... Don't miss out on what is most stunning about the cross. The conquering king, the conquering Lord, is also the priestly Lord who laid down his life for you and for me. This conquering king conquers through his death on the cross. That's the story of the cross. And so, according to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27... He has no need, like those other high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. First for his his sins, or ours, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is a different quality and kind of high priest. And if we really believe that, and we've already done that this morning, but it bears repeating. If we really believe that Jesus is our priestly Lord, then Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 and 16, here's our response. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then do what? Let us then with confidence, not in our abilities, Confidence in Christ and his finished work. Let us then draw near to the throne of grace. Why? So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So do you need mercy this morning? Yes, we all do. Are you in need of God's grace this morning? Yes, we all do. The absolute best thing that you can do for your soul this week is to get close to Jesus and stay close. Come to the throne of grace as your faithful high priest. Jesus is able to meet you, to give you grace in your time of need. Some of you this morning know and love Jesus, but you still have lots of questions for him. How long do I have to suffer? Will I ever get married? Where am I going to live next year or five years from now? What does the next three months of my life look like? Will I get into that school? Will I get that job? Will I have any close friends? What does even tomorrow look like? Jesus has an even more important question for you. He says to each one of us this morning, Am I Lord of your life? Am I really Lord? Will you really trust me, he's saying. Will you really trust me that if I've brought you this far, that I'm going to bring you all the way home? That I'm not going to abandon you in your time of need, but that you can trust me to bring you safely home? Do you know, brothers and sisters, that nothing you or I do this week, not our praises, and certainly not our sins, nothing can change the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. What a great comfort that is. What a great reassurance. What a great joy to confess that whatever happens in your life today or tomorrow or next week or a month from now or a year from now or 20 years from now or 50 years from now, for all eternity, that guess what? because that's what this book says. Jesus Christ is Lord. And he's not about to give that up, praise God. For others of you here, that might not be a great comfort to you, that actually is a warning. So the time of fence-sitting and surveying the religious options available to you is, is over. Because Jesus is not simply asking to have a seat at the table of your life, He's not simply asking to be a kind friend or a wise counselor that every now and again you turn to for help. I mean, that's true, that's accurate, but that's inadequate. You have to determine whether you have and whether you only want lots of information, true information about Jesus, or whether or not you actually see him as your king and as your savior and you will bank your life on him. To say no to him, to say no to him today is actually to invite even greater judgment on yourself when you stand before God and explain to him why you rejected his son. So whether you hate him, love him, ignore him, want nothing to do with him, this week, nothing you do or say will change the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord and he will always be Lord. The question is, is he your Lord? Is is he your god? Let's pray.